Okay, hi, I'm Bill Copeland. Welcome to my podcast. Today I'm here with Bob Watson, uh, who is one of my oldest graduates and has been very successful. And I think you'll learn a lot about the path to success. Welcome, Bob. I'm glad to see you. Thanks, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be in your presence. Oh, thank you. So, um, when you came to SU, where did you you uh, came from? Where did you come from when you came to SU? Small town in upstate New York, Harpersville, New York, about thirty-five miles outside of Binghamton. Okay, and uh, you lived on a farm. I did. I grew up on a farm, family compound. In um, did it have cows? Yes. Do you have to milk the cows? Yes. Did that help in your training? Only getting up early. <laughs> Getting up early. Well, that's a good skill. So that's a good skill. And I actually, still to this day, I still routinely wake up sometime between 4.30 and 5. And I can start my day if I choose to. I, I don't, but I could. So how did you end up in policy studies? You know, like a lot of kids who go to college, even in the 70s, and I'm sure it's true today, we all go to college with an idea that we're going to be a doctor, lawyer, you know, engineer, teacher, we come with a, an idea. For me, I was the first member of my family to ever go to college. And I got to Syracuse on a full scholarship, so I'm very thankful to the university, as you know. And um, because I was first generation, they wanted a doctor. So I was supposed to be the, uh, the doctor in the family. You mean your parents wanted a doctor? Yeah, they wanted a doctor in the family. More so, a doctor, okay. So, and you know, I was fine. I was 18, I would do whatever they told me to do. So, um, sophomore year, Fall semester, organic chemistry. I got a C. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> the only C I'd ever gotten in my life. And I didn't even know what the letter looked like, to be honest. <laughs> and um, so that had me to pivot. So, and at that point, I had taken uh, 101. I think it was 101 then, too. It looks like it is today. And... Um, was very interested and intrigued by sort of your thoughts around skills because I was going to have a skill I was going to be a doctor now what I was going to do so that took me down the path to policy studies and out of that also you know through some referral work um, I also ended up taking classes in the iSchool mm -hmm. which was called School of Library Science back then right, right right and the reason I did that is it was the only way that I could take programming classes couldn't get into the engineering school to learn how to program. So I could take the same courses with an LS de designation as opposed to a CS designation. So I learned how to program. Yeah, a lot of students who want to go into computer applications think they have to go into computer science, and I don't think so. I think the iSchool is a much better place to go because you do computer applications rather than making new computers. So, Bob, would you let our audience know... Um, what you do now? So um, up until um, the middle of July of this year, I was the CEO and president of a company called Javari, which is in the emergency preparedness and response um, platform arena. Um, I retired active as the active CEO in July. I'm now on the board, shareholder, doing some other board work, those kinds of things. You're now retired, but you're still not retired. Is that correct? Retired, not retired. So what people want, your skills? Yeah, I mean, look, I get invitations to be on boards, to be chairman of boards, to help guide young management teams on the journey. And, you know, we've over the last 40 plus years, we've had seven or eight successful ventures. 
that we exited in some form or fashion, either through sale. When you say we, you mean you. Yes, I mean I. Yeah, uh, yes. Because yes. it's, it's never about good to say we, right? No, because anybody who's ever heard me speak or been to any, you know, worked for me, there is no I. Right. And because in order to be successful, it requires you to have a team around you right. to do the things that you're not good at. It's right. like one of the things I talk to young leaders about is let's be self-aware about what we're good at, mm-hmm. accept the things we're not good at, try to do better, but surround yourself with someone who can fill in those gaps for you. And... That's a very, I mean, that's the story of my life because I have right away started using students as my support system and they do everything I can't do, which is most of the skills I want everybody to learn. So we're, we're using the same approach here. I wonder where I learned it, Bill. Uh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so you're on these boards and you, um, so you're in high demand. Yeah, I think so. feels that way. I'm pretty busy for somebody who doesn't have a job. Right. How did you end up where you are uh, after you took 101 and, and information studies? Yeah. What that happened next? So and, next uh, next was, you know, I'm graduating. I've got a BA degree in policy studies with a minor in library science. What am I going to do? Um, I thought about going to law school and... Um, a father of a friend of mine, when I told him that, said that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Lawyers are evil, so don't go to law school. And as you know, I'd always had an interest in health and health policy and those kinds of things. He said, so why don't you get a master's degree in hospital administration? Remember, this is 1979. Healthcare wasn't a third of the GDP, which it is today, but it was rising. It was a big focal point. So I ended up applying to, he gave me a list of schools to apply to. I applied, I got into one. Um, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I didn't realize it was Wharton. <laughs> I just thought it was Penn. Well, how do they take you? They don't usually take people right out of college. What, 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 made, what do you think made you... Um... Well, I think a couple of things. Either there was a mistake in the admissions office, okay. so, so we'll give it that. That's probably the most likely. That's probably the most likely. I could go there, too. But, but look, all the way through my time here at the university, I... Did some research projects with City University of New York that you set me up with. I did some other things where we wrote some papers. So I was always active. And I take standardized tests really well. Yeah, so um, I kind of did pretty well on the, the test. So I, the GMAT. So I, I go to Wharton and focus on healthcare and finance. Like you go to Wharton, you have to focus on finance. Um, found out that that was the accounting side of finance is not my strong suit. So... Fast forward 40 years, I'm always surrounded by a CFO who knows what they're doing. Um, And that led me to um, a job on Wall Street um, as an investment banker in the early 80s. I hated it. Um, I remember um, calling my dad and telling me I was quitting and going to start a company. And my father said, you know, son, your mom and I raised four kids, and we were pretty sure we only had one idiot and we didn't think it was you. <laughs> because my dad was a dairy farmer, right? I mean, he didn't understand starting a business. So we started a business that was wildly successful. Um, but that being wildly successful taught me a lesson that's critical to what's happened in the last 35 or 40 years, which was 
it's never about you. <laughs> it's about the people around you. It's about the way you motivate them. And it's also about the people you choose to allow into your life. I made some very bad life decisions when I was in my 20s and all of a sudden had money and that disrupted my personal life, derailed my professional life for a couple of years. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me, to fail. And so when I counsel young leaders and, and I say to them all the time, I said, look, the single most important thing you can do in your career, other than surround yourself with people who you know, compliment you, is fail. <laughs> fail fast. Because when you fail, if you have any sense of self-awareness, it's a learning experience. And you can choose to learn from it or you can choose to ignore it and go on with the bad behavior. I opted to change my life. And so since that, that, that failure, I've had six or seven, CEO, six or seven CEO jobs, um, you know, all kinds of industries. Um, and you know, the thing I like most about it and I'm most proud of is that I've built some teams that are still in place. They're in place. Still so. in place. Like, you know, Javari, the team I left, the new CEO, he called me last week and said, you know, it's the first time I've ever gone into a new CEO job, and I haven't replaced anybody on the team. Wow. So my whole team's staying. That's what makes me happy. I mean, that's how you build things that are sustainable. I mean, some of the businesses we built 20, 30 years ago still exist today. They're, you know, one of the businesses we built in the 80s is the outpatient division of Hospital Corporation of America. It's, you know, a couple billion dollars in revenue. And it started in a garage. Wow. So those things. Now, when did you come into that one? When it... So that was the company that, um, the first company I started. Oh, you started that company? Started that company with three friends. Wow. And, and the three of us are still friends. <laughs> and um, we're in various degrees of retirement. I was always called the kid because I was the youngest. Oh, okay. I'm 66. They still call me the kid. Right. So, because they're in their 70s. But. Um, that was the business I was successful at. I did manage to save some money, and, I, and that's where I had the, the failure was right after that. And that sort of set me on the path. When you say you had a failure, what? I, I know you don't want to get too detailed, but um, what, what happened? You know, look, I, I, the failure came in a couple of very difficult events. One, a divorce, which, you know, that's, those things are horrible yeah. <laughs> under any scenario. Um, I... Uh, the business, the next business I started failed, and I had filed bankruptcy. I started over from zero. I was actually homeless huh. for about nine months in the early 90s. Wow. Late 80s, early 90s, and living in a car. You were living in a car. I mean, and so I learned my lesson. And the way I got out of the car and into a job was somebody who had, I'd met during my first successful run, had been sort of keeping track of me. But remember, this is the 80s. It's in late, late 80s, early 90s. Not the same as today. So it's a little harder to do. But he tracked me down on the streets in Delray Beach, Florida, huh. and gave me a job. Wow. Gave, gave me a job as a CFO. Again, not my, not my power alley of one of his companies. And then six months into that, I was CEO. Um, so how does this investor thing work? How did, like, how did you get your first investors? So the very first business, so there's, a, there's three levels of capital available in the market today, generally, actually four. One is what are called angel investors, venture capital investors, private equity investors, and public companies. Those are basically the, the bandwidths. Mm -hmm. So 
most entrepreneurs start with an angel investor round, which is friends and family. Personally, I think that's a bad idea. I've never done that. <laughs> I've always started with a venture round, or it's a company who already had some, some size to it, start with a P. So the venture guys invest in early stage businesses. They'll raise, say, a billion dollars from a bunch of pension funds. They expect to invest that billion dollars over a three to five year period, probably in up to 100 companies. Wow. They expect 75% of them to fail. Mm -hmm. 20 will do really well, and five will kill it. Mm -hmm. They'll just become big, massive winners. But that, and it's all early stage stuff. Along the journey, sometimes those venture capital firms get bought out by private equity firms. So somebody will have a thesis, for example, that an investor in a private equity firm, and their model's a little different. They may have a billion dollars, but they're only going to invest in 40 entities. So it's a smaller pool. But they work with them to grow them. So their whole theory in the private equity side is let's take an asset that has been groomed, has a management team in place, and let's bring some value. It's debatable, in my experience, whether or not private equity firms actually bring value, but they think they do. Because they're going to advise also why they're giving the money and tell them what to do. Yeah. I'm, I don't respond well to being told what to do, and, <laughs> but I've survived. And then the fourth option is, which I've done a couple of times, is take the company public. It's a way to create value for your investors. So we, we took two companies public. I ran a public company separately where they, they brought me in to help you know, improve the stock price and the business, those kinds of things. But that's how the investor thing works. So, so um, basically, when you go to these companies and you leave, you get a lot of money. You take a lot of money away from equity and others, so you become very wealthy that way. Is that correct? I guess that's a question. So the answer... Yeah. Yeah, look, that's how... It's, I'm not yes. asking if you're wealthy. No, no, that's... But, we already know that. Yeah, but, but, yeah. Yes, that's how you... That's how you that's how you generate personal wealth is doing these kinds of transactions. You do the same thing with um, your team members. So this is the other part of my thesis that's really important. I make sure that the top valued people in the company all have a chance to make money. I can tell you that some of my CEO peers aren't that way. They hoard everything for themselves. Right. I give away as much as the investors will let me give away to the employees. That's great. And that's great. It's so much fun when you get to do that. So what, what qualities do you look for when you hire somebody? Or you? Yeah, I, I hire for culture fit. I don't hire necessarily for skill fit. Uh -huh. Because if they're talking to me, they have the skills. They right. wouldn't be that far along in their career. So I don't have to judge that. Somebody else has already determined that XYZ person is a good CFO. Right. Okay, I don't have to worry. I worry about whether or not it's a culture fit. And What's a measure of a non-cultural fit? Give an example. So I'll give an example of somebody I interviewed recently. So I interviewed somebody to replace me this, a year ago. And in the course of my chat with him, he said to me, he said, you know, I noticed that you send a lot of emails on the weekends and you talk a lot about your team meeting on the weekends or early mornings. Do you expect that for me to do that? <laughs> right then he was out because the culture at most of my businesses are one that you know, we have an obligation to our shareholders and our clients, and most of the businesses have been involved in are critical infrastructure kinds of things that are 
You're involved every yeah, when day. You're in the emergency management business. Every so. day, right? Wow. So you have to work. It's a, it's a 24-7 job. Right. So that's one of the culture things. The other thing I look for is um, their willingness to participate in a diverse team structure. And believe it or not, there are pockets of this country where diversity isn't, people don't lead with it. I lead with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so those are the things I look for in culture. Are you, are you, can you commit to a business? Do you're willing to do what has to be done to be, for the team to be successful, which makes you successful? Are you willing to be available when we need you? And um, I, I, let me ask you because something that always is important to me is: Can you, do you consider the ability to communicate with the person? Like, if you have trouble understanding them, or you ask them a question, they answer a different question, or that kind of stuff. Does that? You know, look, I, I usually call BS on that when somebody pulls it uh-huh. uh, when I'm interviewing them. And because I think part of the thing that goes on is some people don't realize they're doing it. Right. They don't realize they're not answering the question. Right. Now, I can tell you there's plenty of times I've been asked questions and I've not answered the question, but I can assure you it was intentional. Uh-huh. But there's some people who have developed a skill set of in- subconsciously avoiding the question mm-hmm. to go to what their power alley. Right. What makes them comfortable. Right. So I try to press people in the interview process to think about areas where that, that, that's not their power alley, the things that scare them or tr- troublesome to them. Mm-hmm. And because I want to know if they're going to join the team, I want to know that, you know, Natasha doesn't like conflict. So, okay, so I've got somebody in a key role that doesn't like conflict. There's going to be conflict. It's business. How do I help her get comfortable with conflict? So that is interesting. So um, what kind of advice would you give today's uh, 20-year-olds in terms of pursuing their career? You know, look, I I sound like the couple night I am, but it, look, it, particularly, I look at the young people we hire and in those positions, we do generally hire for skills. So having skills matter. It gets you started. So if I was, a, I have a kid in his 20s and who's just graduated. He was on the five-year plan. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> nobody apparently graduates from college in four years anymore. But what he, when I was talking to him about what he wanted to do with his life, um, you know, I said, do you want to go in business like your brother or like me? Or do you want to go, my daughter's a teacher, do you want to go be a teacher? He said, no, I want something where I can, I want to be outside, I want to be around people, you know. And, and it took him down a path where he started thinking about what internships he wanted to do. And he got an internship at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Wow. Um, out, outdoors every weekend, there's a race, lots of interesting people, lots of personalities, mm-hmm. as you can imagine in NASCAR. I mean the whole gamut of personalities. And um, he loves that job. And he went from being an intern to a full-time employee. So Yeah, so do you, um, do, you, do you see yourself as a do-gooder? Do you do good or just do well? You know, look, I think um, I believe that I am a do-gooder. And it's been a core part of my life. If you go back to the conversation we had earlier about when I had fallen, 
a do-gooder came and found me. That was a really direct example, right? Mm. But there are plenty of other things you can do. And I think one of the luxuries of having the job I have and the career I have is that I can make some things happen. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we do at, at Javari, for example, is when, it, when we first set Javari up in May of 18, I was approached by an organization in Atlanta that wanted to was organizing a half marathon. And it, one of our software offerings was emergency preparedness for medical events at running, running events. And they wanted to buy it. And I'm like, no, we'll give it to you for free. Because it was a part of Atlanta that's grossly underserved. If you know Metropolitan Atlanta, it's south of the stadium. It's, it's an area of town that people who look like me don't go. And so I really wanted to do something for the community. We ended up, and we still now, it's six years later, we've, we run the medical tent. We s serve up somewhere between 50 and 75 volunteers for every race they do. Now that it's gotten bigger, they do three or four years. So that, that's part of another example. The other thing we do is during election season, our associates are encouraged to go work in the polls, to volunteer. Um, you know, we spend a inordinate amount of time, um, and I mean that in a positive sense, by the way, um, with Habitat for Humanity and some other kinds of things. We have a lot of events. Every month, there's something that our teams are doing everywhere in the world to support the communities they live in. I think we have an obligation as corporate leaders to participate in the communities in which we live and work. Mm -hmm. And in the Javari sense, that's nine or ten cities around the world. And we do something every month in every one of those spots. Yeah, I wanted to ask you um, about around the world, but before I do that, I wanted to say that your philosophy of nurturing your leaders and other leaders, that's a do-good thing. And a lot of, especially students and people on the left, think that, well, corporations are bad, but corporations generate income from people, livelihood for people, and help people grow yeah. to make money, but they're still giving people um, value. So I think uh, if, if the business person, the corporations have the right attitude like you do, then you are automatically doing good every day, every minute. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, I, you know, and again, so, there's plenty of examples in the press that everybody focuses on where they don't do good, where they're the other, yeah, the other yeah. people on the other side of the right, equation. Right. But thank you for recognizing what we've done over the years is we've built a, a cadre of people who are, you know, they, they call them Bobisms. Oh, do you? That wander around talking about Bobisms. Oh, cool. And I had a, a kid text me um, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I, I was in a meeting, and I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to the words coming out of my mouth. And he said, oh, my God, I've become Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's very So you're also like a teacher. You're uh, really oh, like yeah. a college professor, except you're not a college professor. You're a teacher. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your overseas. Um, you said you were in six different countries, or we have clients. We have clients in thirty. has clients in thirty-seven countries. Now, what about your? We have offices in okay. New Zealand, Australia, the Lithuania. We had a single person in uh, the UK at one point. I don't think we have anymore. And then we have dis uh, distributors in Japan and UAE. So you're global. It's a global business, yeah. In the team in Lithuania, i got to say, it's my, my pitch for the country of Lithuania. Every American should go to Lithuania on vacation. Don't go to Paris. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, thank you very much for giving us so much wisdom. I, I think we all, all learn. I've learned a lot, and I think uh, the people who listen to this will learn a lot. So 
thank you for attending the um, podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Bob is a wonderful person and a great business person, but mostly a wonderful person. Uh, Stay tuned for future podcasts. Goodbye.